It's 10.31pm on the 22nd of May 2017 and Paul Price's life is about to shatter. My only memories are of my vision going red, the feeling of being airborne. I was then on the floor, not knowing what had happened. I had a feeling of just being on my own. I remember hearing a, a on-repeat sort of emergency announcements. I have a recollection of seeing smoke sort of billowing. And I just remember thinking, well, knowing that I was dying and just, you know, what, what do you think at that point? And then um, my memory stops. Paul thought he was picking up his daughter from an Ariana Grande concert. Instead, he's found himself at the epicentre of the Manchester Arena bombing. As doctors battle to save his life, questions remain unanswered. Where's his partner, Elaine? What's happened to his daughter, Gabrielle? Welcome to the iPodcast, where this week we're looking at Paul's journey after one of the deadliest terror attacks in a generation. It's a story of recovery, loss and bureaucracy in dire need of reform. I'm on my way to Liverpool to meet Paul. The 22nd of May is a night that I remember very vividly. I'm a proud Mancunian and I was at home that night, just a few miles away from the arena when it happened. My younger sister's about the same age as Paul's daughter, Gabrielle, who he was collecting from the concert, and a lot of her schoolmates and friends were at the arena that night. I remember getting frantic messages from my friends as rumours spread that a bang had been heard. At first, people believed, or maybe they just hoped that it was a speaker or part of the stage which had collapsed. The next day, I went with my family to Albert Square, right in the heart of the city, for a vigil. Breaking through that stunned silence, poet Tony Walsh read aloud a piece which has stayed with me ever since. We should give something back. Always remember, never forget, forever Manchester. Choose love, Manchester, thank you. We meet Paul at his house in the suburbs of South Liverpool. Molly, so Hi, nice Molly. to meet you. Thanks for having us. Well, what a beautiful area and what a beautiful day. As we take a seat to chat, I spot a photo of him in the lane on the worktop. A cushion embroidered with reserved for dad lies on his grey sofa beside him as he begins to tell me about his life with her before the bombing. Yeah, so life was really good. Uh, we'd um, both been on our own for quite a long time uh, prior to meeting up. Um, and we were just so happy to have found each other. She was the love of my life. I was the love of her life. And we both used to say to each other, aren't we so lucky that, you know, in this huge, big world, we've found one another. Uh, we were in the process of um, buying our first house together. You know, we had our whole future to look forward to. With Elaine being a police officer, she was going to retire at 55. I would have just turned 61 at that point. I would have retired as well. And we were going to do everything, you know, travel the world, all them bucket list mm. things that everyone dreams and talks about. 
we were going to do it. We were, you know, writing our story together. How did you meet? So it was, it was, it wasn't a blind date. So I used to have this thing where I'd always buy two tickets to a concert in the hope that when the concert came along, I would have met someone. So this mutual friend knew that Elaine was into gigs and single. So uh, we just arranged for a meeting in Liverpool, uh, I think the week before the gig. Sort of instantly clicked. Yeah. It quickly progressed from there, even though both of us were really cautious, you know, having me hurt in the past. Very quickly then, um, then barriers came tumbling down and, um, yeah, you know, we were just perfect for one another. You know, I kept on thinking, you know, what's... What's the catch with her? She's too perfect, but <laughs> yeah, we just um, couldn't have been happier. So, Paul, what were you doing f- for work before this? Okay, so I worked at the production plant at Jaguar Land Rover in Halewood. So we make the Evoke and the Land Rover Discovery Sport there. I was just on the production line, mainly on engine dress, or I'd worked all over. So that night, if we can talk about it on 22nd May... 2017, you had been taking Gabrielle to the gig or you were picking her up? Yeah, no, so I'd, I'd got her two tickets as a Christmas present. I just said to her, you know, we can take a mate. So she chose to take a friend and it would have been their first concert that they'd gone in on their own. Elaine was working that day, so I picked the girls up and then on the way to Manchester, I picked Elaine up from work, just travelled up to Manchester, parked up, Saw the girls safely into the arena, made sure they were okay and just said to them, after the concert, there's no rush, we'll be here, have a great time. And then we went into Manchester, it was a lovely night, just wambled around for a bit and then we had a a lovely meal together. We were very much talking about our house because it was in the process of going through, really looking forward to, as I say, our life together. And then we just strolled back to the arena, waiting in the city room for... The concert to end. And what do you remember from what happened then? It's a bit of a blur, isn't it, for you? Very much so. Um, whether I was knocked unconscious for a while, I don't know. My only memories are of my vision going red. The feeling of being airborne. Obviously knowing I was then on the floor. Not knowing what had happened. I had a feeling of just being on my own. I think I tried to stand up, but... I mean, I had no idea the severities of my injury mm-hmm. injuries at that time. I remember hearing a, a on-repeat sort of emergency announcements. I have a recollection of seeing smoke sort of billowing across the ceiling. I, and I don't know if these are real memories or not, but, yeah. you know. I just remember thinking, well, knowing that I was dying. What I've been told, I was not making memories. My body was fighting to stay alive. So I just wasn't making memories, and when I um, got into hospital, I was uh, put into uh, an induced coma for two weeks. Even after coming out of the coma, you're on that many drugs that, you know, nothing really makes sense. My earliest memory is probably the middle of June. Really? That long after? There's a whole gap? Yeah. Do you know how close you were from the blast itself? Not exactly. I know, uh, I mean, you get told various things. I got told I was the closest person to still be uh, alive. You get told uh, various things. I I don't actually know. It's something I've never sort of sought to find out. And tell us about 
you know, coming out of this, what you remember from the kind of the medical side of all of this. In the aftermath, you're in an induced coma for two weeks. Yeah. And then what happens? You start to come around? Yeah. Um, again, I was on a lot of drugs. I know they tried to bring me out of the coma once, but I was still in too much pain, so they put me back in the coma. ICU, intensive care unit, is very nightmarish for me. The memories don't make sense. It's all like dream. There's no sort of sequence of time. So uh, the memories don't make sense. I don't remember, even though people used to come and visit me. I mean, my son was at university at the time and he used to come. He was at Keel and he used to drive every night from Keel, sit next to me. I didn't even know he was there. You know, the, what the family went through at that time must have been awful. And it was just being sort of slowly being more aware of, of your surroundings. Still not really understanding what had happened, you know, People, various people, you know, people come in and out and they don't know what you know and, you know, it's all mixed up, the, the conversation. Mm. You know, I sort of figured out, you know, it being, being a bombing, you know, I didn't know the extent of the amount of people that were involved. I didn't know everything that had gone on after, in the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Just coming to terms with things, you know, coming to terms. I mean, I'm in a bed, bed bound, you know, looking around the ward. At that point, not really appreciating the extent of my injuries. Just looking round, you know, I, I was looking down at my body, you know, and it was it was a complete mess. And just, you know, you don't, I, I couldn't really, I didn't really have any sort of long, you know, what my future looked like. It was more just getting through each day. The, the pain, even though I was on a lot of medication, the pain was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, not just, you know, the physical pain, the emotional pain of, you know, coming to terms with the loss of Elaine. But I don't remember being told that Elaine had been killed. I just knew. Elaine McIver was just 43 when she died in the blast. She was one of 22 people killed when the terrorists detonated a bomb in a rucksack. More than a 1,000 people were injured. Paul says he'll never be able to quantify the loss of Elaine, but that's not the only thing he needs to deal with. I'm looking at a photo of Paul from just after the attack and he really is unrecognisable from the man I've been sitting across from on the sofa his face is badly burnt there's needles and tubes coming out of him and his arm is strapped to the hospital bed it really hammers home just how physically devastated he was by this attack beyond any of the psychological impact and how remarkable it is actually that he's still standing today would you mind telling us about what your injuries were, you know, as you're coming around and people are trying to tell you, you yeah. know, what's happened? What were you facing at that point? Yeah, so my my right leg was completely well, blown to bits. The tip, fib and femur were all completely shattered. They had to remove a lot of bone because it just would not never have healed. So they had to remove bone and make clean sort of cuts. Uh, I lost the half my calf muscle. The bottom of the leg was had to be rebuilt. Both hands were really badly injured. Um, my left hand was shattered. I can't use the left hand now. I lost the hearing in my right ear. And I've got uh, shrapnel, one in my pelvis, one at the, in my groin, one in, in my thigh, sort of at the top, and one 
in my back, which some of them they just can't get out. Um, and others they said, you know, if it causes a problem, we can look at removing mm. them. But but I, I don't know how many um, objects I had in me, but I think I'd had 22 operations while I was still in a coma. Really? You know, I'm probably over 50 now. And you've got another one coming up? Another one on, yeah, a week today. And to what extent are these injuries still very present for you? How much do they still impact your day-to-day? Yeah, a, a lot. I mean, everything from the way I walk now, my gait, you know, I can only walk so far. Every three months I have to see an osteopath to sort of realign my spine because it's always been sort of put out of line. Just general pain, uh, pulling of scar tissue. Obviously, if I'm in noisy environments, I can't hear very well because of the hearing loss. And every day I have to get up and do mobility exercises just to keep me going. If I don't do them, I can't even get out of bed. Everything just seizes up. Paul spent eight months in hospital with doctors fixing his shattered body as he mourned the loss of Elaine. But his release from hospital only opened the door to another set of problems. Certainly in the early days, you know, I was being told, you know, when you come out of hospital, don't worry about anything, you know, working, all this. I was under the impression that once I come out of hospital, you know, I'll be okay. And it couldn't have been further from the truth. When I eventually came out of hospital, I couldn't live on my own, so I had to move back in with my elderly parents. Mum was suffering with dementia at the time. They were in no position to look after me. You know, they were dealing with everything that happened to me, the loss of Elaine. I felt forgotten. I thought, do you know what? I've spent too long in hospital and I've sort of missed the boat. I come out and, you know, I still had a, a frame on my leg. I couldn't, I couldn't walk. I had, you know, district nurses coming in twice a day to change dressings. But apart from that, I was sort of left to my own devices. I thought, what do I do about my job, uh, about living? You know, what does my future look like now? And it was it was terrifying because at that point, I didn't have a future. I thought the rest of my life is going to be a prison sentence. I just thought, where was all this help? Where was this support? This, you know, this overwhelming public support. You know, the government was saying, you know, we're, we're going to support the victims of terrorism. Where was everyone? Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd been forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I was just basically housebound with, with my mum and dad who were trying to look after me. Paul needed help and fast. Unable to return to work at Jaguar, unemployed for the first time in his life, he was holding out for a payment from the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority, a government body which compensates victims of crime when they can't get recompense by other means. But the process, he would learn, is far from easy. No one was reaching out to me. No one was trying to make contact with me. The government's Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority that process had started while I was still in hospital and that whole process carried on for nearly six years. Six years? Trying to get compensation and that just added to my trauma. I was lucky that I had a solicitor appointed to me through Elaine's work. Mm. If I hadn't have had that, I don't think I would have been able to engage with it. What I was dealing with at the time, dealing with that as well would have been too overwhelming. 
What hoops did you have to jump through for that? Process? I mean, it was obviously there was a lot of forms to fill in, but very early on, I got a strong sense that the whole system was set up that they just didn't believe you. It was set up that you claim you were involved in this and you claim you have these injuries, prove it. Um, and I just thought, how how can they not know? I think now looking back, it, the whole system is set up for, you know, it's it's for victims of criminality. Uh, you know, if you've been robbed, attacked outside the pub, in a road crash for cash, that you know, all all them low level, it's it's not set up for victims of terrorism, because the whole system is to you have to prove to us that you're a victim of crime and you have to prove to us what's happened to you and you've got to prove your injuries to us and right from the early days I remember my solicitor they wanted photographs of my injuries now my injuries were from toe to head right throughout my body I was in no position to provide them photographs mm. myself I wasn't going to ask family or friends so I had to get my solicitor to come in and photograph me where, you know, at the time I felt humiliated. It was embarrassing. You know, I felt like I was being put on display. Yeah. And again, wanting proof of these injuries they had. Well, throughout the six, six years, there was constant requests for medical records because I was always undergoing further surgery. They were forever changing mm. and there'd always been new requests for updated medical records. As I say, that went on for nearly six years. Five years down the line, they wanted more photographs. And again, my solicitor had to come to the house, take photographs of me. Again, dehumanising, yeah. humiliating, embarrassing. And then you think, who's seeing these photographs? Is this, are they like medical professionals or is this just the people in the office? Yeah. I felt like I was on trial the whole time. Did you? I felt like they didn't believe me. All the letters were very much, you know, you claim, you say, prove it. And it just went on and on and on. You've said some of the other people involved in this actually gave up in this process. Some people haven't yeah. seen it through like you. Yeah. I don't think I could have seen it through without the help of solicitor. Yeah, people just... I mean, it, you're reliving the trauma constantly. And their constant questioning... And feeling like, you know, again, it comes across that they don't believe you. It just adds to the, the trauma and it, it shouldn't be like that. Mm. You know, for an organisation that's meant to help, it was hindering, just adding, adding to the trauma of what we'd been through, what everyone knew we'd been through. Yeah. You know, I, un I understand, you know, we need access to your medical records Maybe to a certain extent, I can sort of understand the photographs, but not it carrying on for six years and constant further requests. Mm, mm. There was a moment where things changed a little, wasn't there, when you went on BBC Breakfast and you had that interview and that kind of maybe got some of the wheels in motion. Tell us how that changed things for you. I mean, I went on BBC Breakfast to highlight that the system wasn't working. You know, we spoke to lots of people. We were in the process at that time of putting a survey together why it wasn't working for so many people. 
I went on to, to highlight that, you know, to uh, shine a light on that. I didn't go in there hoping that my claim would be fast-tracked, and that's what happened. On the same day, my solicitor received a call from them, and my solicitor deals with the CICA a lot because he works with the police. He's never had a named contact with the CICA. He got a named contact that day, and it felt very much that my claim got fast-tracked. And again, I, that's not the reason I went on. And it shouldn't take an appearance on TV to get your claim looked at. Yeah. A government spokesperson told us that the Criminal Injuries Compensation Scheme is one of the most generous in the world, paying out more than £158 million to victims last year alone, with a dedicated team helping more than 450 victims of the Manchester Arena attack secure over £4.1 million to date. But they said that we know more must be done to support victims of terrorism, which is why the government is reviewing the support available to better address their needs and help them rebuild their lives. Paul says this review is long overdue. Did that settlement change anything for you? No. If anything, it was a relief that that process was over because it had been the anxiety over them six years, the... Again, reliving the trauma, the worry about letters coming through. And you hear so many nightmare stories, I kept on thinking, will I get anything? Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, if it wasn't for my solicitor, I might have even thrown the towel in with a solicitor because the the stress of it was, was unrelenting. I've been living off my savings for the last, what, three or four years now. I've been funding private medical care, the settlement didn't even cover a year's earnings of me and Elaine. One year of salary for both of you, it's not even that much? No. So all of this, your medical side, a lot of that is having to come out of your own pocket and day-to-day yeah. support because you can't work at the moment? Is that can't right? work, no. I mean, as I say, for the last six years I've been having ongoing surgery. Yeah. I've not been able to work physically, you know, emotionally. How can it be that low, Paul? The, you know, years ago they put a cap on it. You can only claim for your top three injuries. You know, I had to choose what my top three injuries were. The other injuries, they don't, you know, I had too many injuries. The Injury Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's shocking. Mm. So what would have made a difference to you then? Because there are changes, aren't there, that you're pushing for, for victims of terrorism like yourself. What would have made a difference when you were there struggling to get any support, feeling forgotten? What would have turned that around for you? I, I think a more humane face to them. Um, you know, a lot of the letters were very much cut and paste. There was never any acknowledgement of what I'd been involved in. You know, as a victim of terrorism, you've took the hit on behalf of the state. You'd expect the state to be looking after you, mm-hmm. not putting you on, on trial and sending letters that basically say, prove what happened to you so yeah just a whole you know a a name contact you know just that point of contact not having to dealing with a faceless entity never once did they acknowledge you know the the loss of Elaine Mm -hmm. just a bit of humanity in it you know I'd like to say you know more money of course everyone you know would like more money but again I'm still really living off my savings that money will run out what does my future look like? 
do I have to contemplate, you know, maybe going back to work? It would be nice to not have that that worry and that yeah. stress. How heavily does that weigh on you, that fear about the future? It's it's constant. Yeah. It's constant, you know. Prior to this, you know, as I said, we had our whole lives. We both had good jobs. You know, we were doing everything what you should be doing. You know, what the government tells you to do. You know, we were let down on the night. We were let down prior to the night. And I've been let down since. A lot of countries have better systems, better support systems for victims of terrorism. Again, a lot of countries view it as they took the hit on behalf of the state. We're not going to look after them. Why isn't this country doing the same? Mm -hmm. It was an attack on me. It was an attack on us. And where's the help? Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a bit more about today, but some of the good bits of today. Gabrielle, it sounds like, is thriving despite it all. Tell us a bit about what she's up to now. Yeah, so she's currently at Manchester University studying criminology. Uh, She's on summer break at the moment and she's in Ibiza, like a working holiday. She's 20 this Saturday and she's really enjoying life and I'm so glad that she is. Yeah. You can never look inside the head. You never know what effect it's going to have on them. You know, what she went through on that night was awful. You know, waiting for her dad to pick her up. You know, finding herself outside the arena, on the streets, not knowing what was going on, trying to contact me. Luckily, a couple sort of took them under the wing and convinced them to get get them in a taxi. I know taxis were ferrying people home free of charge. But she just kept on saying, I'm waiting for my dad. She wouldn't get in. Um, you know, what she went through on that night was awful. She was only 13. You know, I was never going to come. Um, she didn't know that. Mm. And what effect that has on them, you, you can never you can never tell. But, you know, she's done well in school. She's doing everything that, you know, a teenager should be doing. I'm so proud of her. She went through a hell of an experience. Mm-hmm. You know, to see her dad the way I was must have been awful for her. Mm. But yeah, I'm so proud of her. You must be. Yeah. You should be. She sounds amazing. And just finally, just want to bring it back to Elaine. I think she'd be really proud of what you're doing, you know, raising awareness like this and, and keeping up that fight. Yeah. Do, does she guide you in this? All the time. All the time. You know, constantly kicking me up the bum. Um, <laughs> you know, she was a police officer. She dedicated her life to, to helping helping other people. You know, and I'm trying to carry on what she you know she did. Trying to help other people. That's all I'm trying to do. You know, for me, you know, a lot of the things it's it's already too late. Mm-hmm. I don't want anyone that's have the awful experience of being involved in a in a terrorist attack to have the, the trauma the unnecessary trauma that comes after it with trying to find your place in the world again and just to try and get help. Other countries can do it. You know, it's embarrassing that we can't. That's all we've got time for this week. You can read Paul's piece at inews.co.uk. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.